0: Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Everyone and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 197. And today we continue our coverage of the various secret service agents that were present that day in Dealey Plaza and begin our coverage of Sam Kinney. The story of Sam Kinney is a long one, and so we are going to tell it in a couple of episodes. Kinney was the driver of the presidential follow-up car. Kinney at the moment, the shots were fired had the follow-up car snuggled up within about five feet of the rear of the presidential limousine. Unlike others in the follow-up car, he had to keep his eye on the road ahead and the car in front of him, not the spectators off to one side or another. So when the first shot occurred and it sounded like a firecracker and others began to look around to see where the shots might be coming from or what it was even, Kinney would continue to look straight ahead, right at the president. And then the dreadful shot came, which tore a hole in the president's head. It was so powerful that the president's skull and brains were ejected in a massive spray that landed in a cone-like trajectory to the back and the left of where the president was sitting. Back and to the left. The sea of blood and brain matter would be all across the left side of the windshield, the portion of the windshield that Sam Kinney was looking through, and the splatter would continue at an angle past the windshield, and the pure physical force of it all would carry the same spray of blood and tissue all over the two motorcycle policemen who were riding on the left side of the presidential follow-up car, Bobby Hargis and B.J. Martin and who were that day and at that moment not riding alongside the presidential limousine. Instead, they had fallen back based on orders. Motorcyclists on both the left and the right side of the presidential limousine had slowed down, resulting in yet another layer of lost physical protection for the president. Their bodies and motorcycles usually right up alongside of the presidential limousine in a protective phalanx. They were absent from those positions. The direction which the spray and splatter traveled would make it almost impossible to believe that there was not a shot from the right front. No other force could have propelled so much human matter that distance and in that direction back and to the left. Directly in front of me, I, I was well, I had rain matter all over the windshield bar. Oh my gosh, how close worse. This was reinforced by the fact that the pattern of blood spray was almost non-existent on the right side of the follow-up car. The right side, as compared to the left. Officer Hargus's face would be splattered with blood brains, and tissue, and Officer Martin would also be a recipient of some of this same incredibly morbid punctuation related to the killing of the President. There were a lot of people who, over the years, had been tagged with the responsibility of the decision to remove the bubble top that day on the presidential limousine. Probably top of the list was President Kennedy himself all part of the blame game to lay the responsibility for JFK's assassination on the president himself. Others were accused as well, including presidential aide Lawrence O'Donnell, Agents Winston Lawson and Forrest Sorrells, and Agent Roy Kellerman, among others. One account even had Dave Powers, the presidential aide, as responsible for the decision. A man who might arguably have been the president's best friend. But the man who actually did make the call was Secret Service agent Sam Kinney. Years after the assassination, Sam Kinney retired to Florida and Vince Palomara interviewed him, telling that story on three different occasions to Vince Palomara, two of which were recorded. He would simply say it was my fault the top was off and I am the sole responsibility of that. Kennedy would go on to say that he walked out the door that morning and the sun was shining, and because it was a political trip, the top was coming off. Others would debate whether it was truly a political trip or not, but I think that's splitting hairs. Anywhere the president goes and anywhere there is a fundraiser, it's political.
1: There's Mrs. Kennedy, and the crowd yells, and the president of the United States... We arose that morning early to go out and prepare the cars because it was raining and, and uh, we were trying to make a decision whether to leave the bubble top on or off. Skies broke and so I said, well, there's a decision right there, no tops because we are there on a political motorcade and uh, President Kennedy wanted to meet the people. I was driving the follow-up car right behind him. It appears as though something has happened in the motorcade group. Then I saw the president grab his neck. And then by that time, there there was two falling shots, just like a pow, pow. And all of a sudden, one lousy damn bullet will destroy this man and family. For what? The thing that brings tears to my eyes is every time, even to this day, when I see John, John saluting. that, uh, it hits me very hard.
0: You just listened to what may have been the only public interview conducted by Sam Kinney, and he did it on the NBC today show. As we've mentioned before, Each of the Secret Service agents would write reports in the hours and the days after the assassination. Kinney filed one of those reports on November 30th, just eight days after the assassination, and in that report, he would take responsibility for removing the bubble top. It was made of quarter-inch plexiglass, and many people thought it was bulletproof, when in fact, it was not. But having said that, there is some protective value associated with having the bubble top on. Number one, the reflection of sunlight often obscures an absolutely clear view, making it more difficult to aim and fire. And while the plexiglass is not bulletproof, it's generally thought that a bullet entering the glass at an angle would likely have its trajectory altered as it pierced the plexiglass. And that in and of itself would change the direction of the bullet. And of course, a change in the direction of that bullet might have changed everything. Many believe there is a psychological effect that acts as a deterrent when you have the bubble top on. The idea that there is a bubble top on the car in and of itself might deter some. Those individuals thinking that the probability of success would be lower and therefore potentially just abandoning the exercise. The idea that the bubble top was equipped with bulletproof glass was not the exclusive domain of the public. And that was true within law enforcement ranks as well. Stavis Ellis was a motorcycle officer who rode that day in the motorcycle detail and flanked the president as he left Love Field. He, too, thought that the bubble top was bulletproof. You know, there's an old saying that says, we don't make them like we used to. Usually, what that means is that something was much more well-made in the past than it is now, perhaps a toaster or something like that. But in the case of a bubble top, today's bubble tops are, of course, much safer than they were in 1963. That morning, the limousine arrived at Love Field, nestled inside the Humaga C-130 transport plane, and it arrived with a bubble top on. And as President Kennedy pushed into the crowds, the president was getting up close and personal to many citizens who came to greet him and Mrs. Kennedy at Love Field. And at the same time, Secret Service agents were removing the bubble top before its inhabitants climbed into the presidential limousine for the ride through Dallas and onto the trademark. Hindsight might be 2020, but it's pretty clear that the bubble top should have been on that day. So many risk indicators were screaming for the bubble top to be on, and it's also pretty clear that it was not President Kennedy's decision to leave the bubble top off. Is it true? Were you responsible
2: for the bubble top going on the car? I was. Uh, you are okay. Because one of the things that they out is that supposedly here again, Jeff Case said, "Get that. I'm quoting now. Get that guardian bubble top off because it's raining." There was that comment. That is not true, uh, George.
0: Kenny would repeat his same assertion of that fact in 1978 to the House Select Committee on Assassinations the same fact that he was solely responsible for that decision on that fateful day and of course you just heard him say it later on in life again when speaking with Vince Palomara Sam Kenny appears to be one of the good guys owning up to an important decision that was, almost assuredly, one of a handful of decisions that day that likely contributed something incrementally to the assassin's success. Sam Kinney would speak the truth to Vince Palomara on many topics, including his own responsibility for the bubble-top decision. Kinney would share other things with Palomara during their numerous talks, and another one of them was... To completely refute the notion that President Kennedy made the decision to have the Secret Service agents stand down. That is to not ride or jog beside the presidential limousine. No, sir. That was not the president's decision. And Kinney would make that abundantly clear in his unequivocating answer to Vince Palomara. So who did? That is the question. Right at the very moment that the shots began to ring out, none of the four agents that were then situated on the running boards of the Queen Mary were anywhere close to the president. Just like the motorcycles on the left and the right, they had fallen back and were now in position on the running boards of the Queen Mary. So what happened in the four- or five-second interval between the first shot and the fatal shot? Was there enough time to leap off those running boards and dash onto the presidential limousine and become a human shield? Many would say that there was. But what happened next is one more terribly bizarre moment in the protection of the president. As those shots began to ring out, Emory Roberts, who was essentially the quarterback of all the agents in the follow-up car, gave an order to stand out and not to dash toward the presidential limousine. There was only one agent who defied that order, and that was Clint Hill. The agent on the front right running board of the follow-up car, Agent John Reddy, the agent who was physically closest to the president would begin that process and then be told by Emory Roberts in the immense pressure of that moment to stand down and stay on the Queen Mary. There's also been something made about Emory Roberts about the fact that he recalled John Redding. Kenny, based on Palomar's research and interviews, seems to be one of a handful of Secret Service agents that believes there was a conspiracy. Yeah, you know, that's a good
2: question about that, too. You know what? You've probably been asked this a million times over. What do you think? you know, he was to definitely just go, did it.
0: It's not exactly clear why he believes that but it was clear at least in the beginning that he believed the shot came from the right from the grassy knoll that seems a little bit fuzzy in later statements he saw the shot that hit the president's head he may have had the best view of it at the time and in later years he does profess that he thought lee harvey oswald fired all three shots from behind. More confusion on the topic. But here was a man about 10 to 15 feet away from the president's head and operating with a trained eye at the very moment of the shooting, the one man that was staring at the president's head when the shot hit. Kenny thinks all three shots hit their mark, that a different bullet hit Conley than hit Kennedy, and that Kennedy was, of course, hit twice. Sam Kinney had spoken to Governor Conley in later years, and he would reiterate that Governor Connolly was himself very adamant that he was hit by a separate shot, separate from the one that killed the president. seemingly accounting for all three bullets that the Warren Commission says were fired. I don't think Kinney was ever asked about the idea of a fourth bullet, rather than just three. We all know that the fourth bullet, if it occurred, is almost universally accepted as having missed the limousine in its entirety, and is almost universally accepted as injuring bystander James Tagg in the face. And therefore, almost assuredly, taking what Kinney says that there were separate shots that hit the president and Governor Connolly, combined with a bullet that he doesn't talk about, but the one we know most assuredly existed, the one that hit James Tagg, all that together virtually assures a shooting conspiracy. Sometimes you don't have to say it, but you can still confirm it. And that is what the information provided by Sam Kinney does. Kinney was also never presented with the evidence associated with the direction of the spray pattern of blood and human tissue and bone that Josiah Thompson is emphasizing these days as one of the most compelling reasons to believe that a shot came from the knoll. A shot that sent blood tissue and brain matter hurling violently back into the left. And you know that Sam Kinney was sitting right there in the driver's seat to receive all of that about 10 to 15 feet behind the president's head. Again, back and to the left. So you would think it would have been a pretty good bet that Kenny himself thought a shot had come from the front and the right. And you would have thought that such a revelation would have sealed it for him. A revelation about conspiracy. It's hard for me to reconcile some of his statements. The evolution of what he said about where the shots came from and then why he does not espouse the idea of a fourth shot coming from somewhere else other than the school book depository. Why did all that suddenly become less clear? Was there something more that he knew if it wasn't about the eyewitness event that he saw? Is that what caused him to, just a week after the assassination, clearly indicate that there was a shot coming from the right. And then later, in his oral interviews, indicate that he thought all three shots came from behind. Oh, he was one of the good guys for sure. But something may have gotten to him that affected the change in his story over the years. But one thing was really clear to Sam Kinney. Contrary to any autopsy photos or the controversy about what had been seen at Parkland by the doctors and then what was documented as being seen at Bethesda, Sam Kinney would say that the back of President Kennedy's head was shot out and his brain was gone. Well, you know, was the back of Kennedy's head really
2: gone? It was
0: A fourth shot, as we all know, almost assuredly defines conspiracy due to the inherently slow nature of the Mannlicher Carcano rifle. On the other hand, there is another simpler angle to this, as we all well know. A shot coming from anywhere else besides the school book depository immediately confirms a shooting conspiracy. Putting all that aside, Sam Kinney thinks there was a conspiracy, despite his insistence that he thinks Oswald fired all the shots that day. As I said, Sam Kinney was not the only Secret Service agent who thought there might have been a conspiracy that day in Dallas. Abraham Bolden, Jerry O'Rourke, John Marshall, and Maurice Martnow all expressed concerns about this topic, and there were others such as Stu Stout and Lem Johns who had their suspicions as well. The fact that so many Secret Service agents had a question about whether a conspiracy existed is a highly relevant fact, especially when it included some of the agents that were there on the ground that day right there in Dealey Plaza. Kenny was well-liked and he was old-school He never wrote a book about these experiences. Certainly he could have, but he cooperated with Palomara's interview request. Kenny, being the driver of one of the principal cars, the follow-up car, well, Palomara asked him a simple but compelling question. Why they didn't avoid going through the plaza and just continue down Main Street instead of making the right turn on Houston and entering the plaza. Kenny never gave Palomar a definitive answer on this. Of course, we know that the turn right there on Main, on the other side of the triple underpass, and where you would have had to have swung right to get onto industrial boulevard, well, it had a cement barricade there to retard any attempts to do just that, to make that right turn. Now, you would have thought someone would have simply suggested to move the concrete barrier out of the way for a few minutes just to let the motorcade go by and make the right turn. My God, it was the president. I wonder how many times that question played in Winston Lawson or Forrest Sorrell's head after the assassination. The closest agent to President Kennedy who was located outside of the vehicle was Agent John Reddy. He was on the right front running board of the presidential follow-up car, on the Queen Mary or the halfback. He, too, would receive a bit of blood and gore, but nothing like Sam Kinney, Clint Hill, and the two motorcycle riders on the left. Palomara makes an interesting observation about Agent Reddy, surmising that he might have been, as Palomara puts it, mentally occupied. Reddy sadly experienced a death presumably in his own family and took emergency leave off the White House detail from November 15th through November 19th, just days before the trip to Dallas. He would miss the entire Florida trip, but would return in time to go to Texas. Kenny would say that John Reddy was his good friend. They were best buddies. In a repeat fact, From our previous episode, it was Sam Kinney who found Tom Shipman's body at Camp David. Shipman was another Secret Service driver who often drove the follow-up car, but not that day. And now, back again, once again, to that gruesome, fatal moment. Sam Kinney's eyes were fixed on the president's head until that fatal shot hit as they made their way down Elm Street. There is a siren button at the lower left floorboard, and Kinney stomped on it with his left foot as the shots began to ring out, sending a communication directly to the presidential car, a message to alert Agents Greer and Kellerman. In the moments after the fatal shot, as the presidential limousine began to accelerate, so would Kinney as he operated the Queen Mary. The cars were accelerating so fast by the time they got to the underpass, the lead car driven by Chief Curry and the presidential limousine, along with the presidential follow-up car, almost collided on the other side of the underpass. But they managed to avoid that, and off they would all go to Parkland Hospital. When they got to the hospital, Kinney would be approached by Press Secretary Malcolm Kilduff. Kilduff wanted to ensure that the press would not take any pictures of the blood-stained back seat of the presidential limousine, and so Kilduff directed Sam Kinney and others to get the bubble top on the car. He did so dutifully after the car was moved well out of the way of the onlookers at Parkland. Kinney put the bubble top on himself. It usually takes two people. He's not sure how he was able to do it. Kinney would be charged with the task of getting the limousine back to Love Field and then load it onto the C-130 transport plane for the trip back to Washington. He would approach Jesse Curry and ask to have a motorcycle escort as Kinney would be taking the presidential limousine back to Love Field to board the C-130 transport plane for the ride home. A little-known fact is that during this exercise, Kinney would find a piece of the President's skull. It was about the size of a small ashtray. He put it in his pocket until he saw White House physician, Admiral George Berkeley, a man he was good friends with and that he thought very highly of. He gave it to Dr. Berkeley, and Dr. Berkeley put it into his own pocket. Of course, the question is, where did that skull piece end up? It was never accounted for at the autopsy like the other fragments were.
2: Really, yeah? Yeah. He was one hell of a man. I got his picture hanging on my wall, along with the president, and I thought this like it was much of it man.
0: Kinney was a good man who was deeply affected by the president's assassination. Like so many of the Secret Service agents who experienced the trauma of Dealey Plaza that day, he was so shaken up that he couldn't even attend the president's funeral on Monday, November 25th. His daughter, Susan Kinney Rosser, in later years would go on to say that that day changed her father's life. It broke his heart, and she would add that it affected him, it hurt him, and it haunted him. Agent Kinney was asked by Vince Palomara whether the agents as a group talked much about the assassination in the aftermath. Kinney would shake his head, nodding no, and say that none of the agents have ever discussed the assassination in a group. And that was the case for a very long time. But finally, Kinney would reveal that there had been some discussion during the gathering of retired officers in later years. That was, of course, before a bunch of them wrote the book entitled The Kennedy Detail, where more was revealed, whether you believe it all or not. Did Sam Kinney like the president? I think he did. Did Floyd Boring like the president? I think he did. Kennedy never carried money with him, and there's a funny little story about that. Floyd Boring would give him the president, $20 bills to drop in the plate, the collection plate, at the Catholic Church which Kennedy attended. Kenny would say, I love the guy, and I loved the Kennedy family. I really did.
2: Boy, I think this is amazing. I guess William Manchester got away at this at the time because he was such a highly tonic journalist and he had sort of that Kennedy authorization to do this.
0: It was Kenny who would refute the almost iconic line attributed to Kennedy regarding the Secret Service performance that day. Kennedy allegedly made the remark that turned into a demand, and I quote, to keep those Ivy League charlatans off the back of the car. Kenny would be very clear that Kennedy did not say that. In fact, Kenny would say that Kennedy never ordered us to do anything of that nature.
2: to do with that. All right, say good, because you know what? Uh, William Manchester makes the claim that Floyd Boring was ordered by Kennedy, and I'm quoting what it says in the book. Ivy Lee mean, Charles is off the back of my car. That is false. Yes, I found that out, and I, I talked to William Manchester, who lives in Connecticut, about that. He He said, All those notes are under seal, and I'm not allowing anyone, especially yourself, to look at these. Who was that who talking to? Them. Uh, William Manchester? Oh, um, okay. I talked to William Manchester. He, he called me. Uh, Before other than there yeah.
0: Despite the inactions of the Secret Service that day, the public image of the Secret Service would continue to be boasted by Hollywood. In a Clint Eastwood film, they would depict the presidential follow-up car in a fictional account of the Secret Service as they guarded the president. And Clint Eastwood was superimposed onto the film where Agent John Reddy would have been on the right side of the car that day in Dallas. John Kennedy had a very special relationship with George Hickey. It is a relationship that most people didn't know at the time, and most people still don't know today. George Hickey was the man who gave Kennedy the coconut, in the PT-109 story. A story that is miraculous in and of itself. But to have the man that gave the coconut to the president, the coconut that saved his life, halfway around the world during World War II, in a remote part of the South Pacific, well, (laughs) folks, you, you just can't write this stuff. And Agent Hickey and Kennedy would... Both keep that fact secret for well over two years after Hickey joined the White House detail. That's why it's so sad to hear the poorly manufactured story in the book Mortal Error. The story about Hickey raising the AR-15 upon hearing the first shots and then accidentally firing a shot from the presidential follow-up car. A shot into the presidential limousine that proved to be the fatal shot which got the president. It's a terribly false story, a terribly flawed and false narrative, and it haunted Hickey, so much so that he died just a few years after the book came out, and he devoted much of the energy he had left for life on this earth to legally challenging the whole premise in court. In the end, he was granted an out-of-court settlement, revealing the truth about the narrative that was being spun to sell a book.
2: one oh nine story and it, it's like a little piecemeal details. one like you said he was and he did uh, nobody knew that until George Hickey was the major for probably three years before anybody
0: ever knew that. Oh my gosh, brother. Kenny would go on to say that Kennedy had a unique memory when it came to people. He would remember and not forget people he could recall many years later what someone's name was and facts about them. It was remarkable. And as to Kennedy's relationship with Floyd Boring, well, Kenny would say that Floyd Boring and JFK got along fine, clearly in contravention of many stories that depicted their relationship as, at the very least, with some tension.
2: brains. i <laughs> for!
0: Kenny was interviewed by the House Select Committee on Assassinations on February 26, 1978, and his testimony was an important movement forward for events that happened that day. He first entered the field of law enforcement in 1950 when he made his way on to the Washington, D.C. Metro Police Force. It took eight years, but in 1958, he was assigned to the White House Police Force and then He was appointed to the Secret Service in 1960. Kinney would respond to questions about the statements made by William Manchester and Jim Bishop, both authors writing hugely popular early books on the assassination story, and both authors spinning the story about tension in the White House between the Kennedys and the Secret Service personnel in the White House detail. In particular, Floyd Boring and Gerald Bain, the number one and number two Secret Service agents in the White House Secret Service detail. Sam Kinney was incredibly well-liked. Gerald Bain was his boss at the White House, and they were good friends, according to Sam Kinney, as were so many other agents in the core of the Secret Service and on the White House detail. Kinney would also emphasize that President Kennedy was one of the easiest men to protect. Kennedy trusted the Secret Service men. Well, that's if you listen to men like Sam Kinney. And maybe that was true. But then again, if that was true, why did the Kennedys engineer a House bill that would have potentially moved the responsibility for presidential protection out of the hands of the Secret Service? Again, to reiterate, some things said in prior episodes, there are statements and actions here about the relationship that the Kennedys had with the Secret Service that are clearly incongruent with one another and what we have heard in other venues. And I'm not sure which narrative to believe, that is, which one to believe when things don't line up. (laughs) Sound familiar? And remember, the idea that the Kennedy brothers wanted to change the structure of presidential protection is different than the idea that they personally had confidence in or liked or disliked any one agent. I'm sure they liked a lot of the agents and disliked some too. And I am sure the corollary is true as well, that some agents liked the Kennedys and some did not. But in the end, the Kennedys were not in charge of which agents could be on the White House detail and how the Secret Service conducted itself as a whole, related to guarding JFK. And that was likely the rub with the Kennedys at that moment in time when it comes to the Secret Service. There is one more incredible story I will tell before I close the personal chapter on Sam Kinney. After his passing, an interview took place with Sam's neighbor, Gary Lauchs, and it revealed a startling fact, that Sam Kinney had found an intact bullet in the limousine. (laughs) Sound familiar based on most recent JFK news this year? Yes, folks, you, you can't write this stuff. Assuming his neighbor was telling the truth, then it certainly raises all sorts of questions about the magic bullet theory and also casts some interesting questions to be asked about the most recent revelations of another Secret Service agent right there, that day, the revelations of Paul Landis. He, too, found an intact bullet in the limousine. (laughs) Intact bullets found all over the place, I guess just never entered into evidence. This story, though, the story from Gary Lauchs, precedes Landis' story. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's go ahead and play the audio from that interview with Sam Kinney's neighbor, and you can listen and decide for yourself. Who was Sam A. Kenny?
3: Well, Sam was a uh... Real good friend, and of course he was my neighbor. He lived about twenty-five feet from me. One evening uh, back in '86, uh, I stopped in to see Sam. It was kind of late at night, maybe eight thirty. He made us a drink. He said, "Sit down, let's have a visit." So he started talking about his life in general and uh, when he left the Secret Service. And he started getting in detail about his days at the uh, agency and. Uh, he said uh, he definitely saw and heard the shot from the grassy knoll he said i heard that and i saw it. i saw some smoke i said well that's interesting cuz you know you've never talked about that to me before he said well and then he talked further on about a conspiracy he says there's just it's impossible that they got a president a leader of a country like ours without some kind of a conspiracy he said one man can't do this could have happened. It may have happened this way, but when he said it, it, it had a lot more meaning. You know, he was there. He was in the car behind the presidential limo. He had full field of vision. You know, but then he told me something. It kind of is going to close the case on a fifty-year-old mystery where the bullet C E three ninety nine came from and how it got there. That's the bullet was on, found on the stretcher. Uh, Parkland Memorial Hospital, and Sam had found this while well, cleaning up the car and going through the presidential car, and he just picked it up and laid it on that stretcher. Never said a word. And then we got all done, you know. He says, uh, you, you can tell this stuff. And I said, okay, I'll tell it. If you want it out there, I'll tell it. He says, but I think you better wait until I die. <laughs> I said, okay. I said, I hope it isn't anytime soon. I thought that the 50th anniversary was a good time to to tell this because he wanted it told. It, uh, you know, I'm not looking for fame or fortune. I'm just the messenger here. I think he wanted to clear up the mystery of how that book, you know, he wanted to get the car cleaned up, and he didn't want the president to be remembered like that, and he, he just thought he was doing something for his president, not even considering a crime scene. I'm sure it didn't even that day, it was such a surprise and shock. I don't even think it even, he'd even thought about it. Um, but he, he was uh, loyal to the president, and that's the way he, he took care of business. You know, he, he was covering his back, you know, and, and um, that was mm-hmm. it. That, he didn't really go into great detail about it um, as far as cleaning the car. He got the cars ready, um, put the top on them, and got them back to uh, the airport and uh, got them Loaded aboard the 130 and back to Edwards Air Force Base.
2: Uh, You're a Marine, from what I understand, and and you've never been one to necessarily believe in conspiracies, but this really touched you, and and this personal information that you received from Sam was important to you. Is that correct?
3: Yeah, that's correct. Uh, I was quite amazed that he trusted me with that information, you know. Uh, He wanted it to put forth people who knew Sam. uh, He was Quite a straight shooter. I, uh, people who know me know I wouldn't do something stupid like this <laughs> if it wasn't true. But uh, he picked who he would talk about it to. You know, he just didn't talk about it to everybody. Kept you know security on him. He even went to the Ford plant when they were being built. He would be there with the cars. And he stayed on as an agent until uh, uh, President Johnson came in and retired when President Johnson was in office.
2: Gary, let me ask you this. A lot of people are concerned about LBJ's role in this. Did he speak of LBJ as a suspicious party?
3: Well, one time we were visiting, and um, he, he said something to the effect of, you know, when something like this happens, you have to look to see who would benefit the most. And he said all the fingers were pointing at LBJ. He, he did say that.
2: How you feel this is so
3: important. I wanted to get out was that he did feel and that a shot came from the grass. You know, he said he saw smoke, heard the shot. He also uh, thought that there was a conspiracy to shoot his president because one man couldn't do it. And he's probably right on the money. One man couldn't do it. He definitely wanted it out there. He asked me to take care of business after his death. And uh, he was my friend, and I'm doing that today. Trying to get it out on the 50th, so it may have some impact. It may I hope it answers a question, confirms a couple. Glad to do it.
0: Thank you for listening to episode 197 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. Stay tuned for a bonus episode where we read verbatim Sam Kinney's statement that he made on November thirtieth, 1963, and then his subsequent testimony 15 years later, in 1978, before the House Select Committee on Assassinations.